This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 105, recorded on November 10th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital here in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I am along here with a special co-host from Solving Kids Cancer, Donna Ludwinski. Welcome, Donna. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. For those of you expecting Brenda, she sends her regrets, couldn't make it on today. And in fact, I think one of the next ones, I won't be able to make it on, so she'll be without me at that time. So uh, we'll manage without Brenda today, but hopefully we'll do fine. So Don and I are here today with a special guest, Ann Graham from MIB Agents. Uh, Welcome, Ann. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, I know you're a podcast aficionado, so uh, we appreciate your being on and blending your expertise and sharing with us your your background, your history, your goals, what you're doing, and we're going to pick your brains a little bit over the next 20 to 30 minutes. And so we appreciate that. So you, you're the founding executive director of MIB Agents. You're a board member of SARC. You're on a number of different other panels, alliances, groups, um, uh, Accelerate. You're involved in a lot of different advocacy. So we appreciate all the work you've been doing for the pediatric cancer community for many years now. But why don't we just start by having you Tell us your story, which I know you've probably recounted many, many times, but um, it'll just set up, you know, the rest of the discussion. Yeah. Um, So I was, um, it was 2010, I was training for a marathon and my leg hurt and it hurt a lot. So I went to my sports medicine doctor who diagnosed me as being 43 and a runner and, um, sent me home, said, listen, you're 43, your leg's going to hurt. Just, you know, maybe slow down on training a little bit, use a roller, you know, kind of the, what you would think you would kind of get diagnosed with, which, which is why it took me a month or so of a lot of pain to go in and, and seek treatment because I was kind of thinking the same thing, <laughs> the same thing. My knees tired of me running on it. So um, really kept hurting. It, it, and it was just increasing in pain. So I went back pretty much every month for nine months, misdiagnosed with everything from your IT bands too tight, compartment syndrome, uh, stress fracture, you name it, I had it, but I didn't really have any of it. So at, um, at nine months, I could, I got out of bed, um, after a particularly busy work weekend and I couldn't put any weight on my leg, on my that whole leg. So I had crutches because at that point my my diagnosis was a stress fracture. Put, put my boot on, got my crutches, and crutched into the office without an appointment. And I said, "Okay, it's time for an MRI." And uh, she said, "Mom, you know," and then I said, "Okay, no, we're done. I need an MRI like today," which is entirely out of character for me to go to demand anything. But I was in so much pain, so she relented. I, I had an MRI that day, and um, 
I was in and out of that MRI machine for three and a half hours because they would call, it was a community hospital in upstate New York, calling in different experts. <laughs> so at one point I, I looked back, you know, at the control room and there was like eight people in there. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is, is it broke? Is the machine broken? What's happening? So when I came out, the, um, finally they released me from the beast and I, you know, was leaving and the, uh, MRI tech put his hand on my shoulder and said, um, okay, you need to go see your doctor. And it's like six 30 at night at this point. And I said, okay, yeah, got it. I'll make an appointment. And he goes, no, she's waiting for you now. And I was like, what? Like, but it's six 30, the office is closed. And he goes, just go see her. So it was across town, went over walked into her office her back was to me but the screen was facing the door and she didn't see me or hear me cobbling in on my crutches and I went that's cancer that's cancer on that is that my leg because that's cancer and she goes well and I just left I I couldn't even uh sort of comprehend what was happening so um happily she knew enough to send me to another center to be diagnosed and um, ultimately ended up at Sloan Kettering and um, had a um, open biopsy, had the diagnosis, was admitted and started treatment like two days later. And um, age notwithstanding, I was treated in the pediatric cancer center at Sloan Kettering as the only grown up. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like from the very beginning, you were an advocate. You had to advocate for yourself very strongly against the medical uh, system. It was also fair enough, you know, at 43 years old, you don't look at somebody with a sore leg who's running at 43 and go osteosarcoma. Um, so the um, doctors at Sloan Kettering started calling me the zebra. Um, after the old adage, if you hear first hear horses, don't first assume zebras, assume horses. Are you here galloping coming down the hall? Assume horses, not zebras. So I became the zebra. And I have to say, once I was at a sarcoma center, there was no, I, did, I had no need to advocate anymore. It was like floating down a river, you know, okay, we're going to send you here. Now we're going to send you here. Now we're going to send And it was like, everybody was on their game and I, I received excellent care. So what was it like then in a, as a, a grown up, you know, child's world? <laughs> Um, very informative, um, awe-inspiring, inspiring, and it's overused to say inspiring in pediatric cancer, just because somebody's really sick, you go, oh gosh, I don't have it that bad. So I'm inspired is kind of the, the subtext of, of that. It wasn't because of that. And honestly, I did not, I did not know how I felt about being treated in pediatrics, um, at first, until sort of about halfway through, the treatment wasn't going so well, and they were having to add new chemotherapies. And I, we had we have three daughters, and I said I can't be in New York City for you know two weeks out of every month. Can I have some of this treatment at home? So I had half you know a week of treatment at home and a week of treatment at Sun Kettering. So I was pretty excited. I was going to be treated with adults, and I was like, this is going to be great. <laughs> get to be with the grownups. And um, I went in at 8 a.m. By 10 a.m., I called my nurse over and I said, I'm crashing here. I can't. I, I'm crashing. Like, 
everybody here is talking about dying and death and who has it worse. And it, it was, I, I was truly, I was crashing. I was like, I can't do this. It, it was like a, almost a competition on who had it worse. And um, I couldn't wait to go back to pediatrics because the kids in pediatrics never talked about cancer. They never talked about cancer. They talked about friends and music and sports and anything else but cancer. So after being treated in adult, um, an adult cancer center, I knew exactly how I felt about being treated in pediatrics. Well, we can really learn from the kids, it sounds like. Yeah, I did as much as I could. <laughs> as much as I could, I learned from the kids. So so you got through treatment. Um, yeah. And then at some point, you made it a life's mission. Or tell us about that sort of transition or how you sort of came to that point. You know, not that many people ask me that, um, Dr. Creighton. So I'll, I'll give you the truth. Um, what happened was, like I said, it, the treatment wasn't going that well. My necrosis wasn't so great. So I asked my doctor, okay, so what's next? Like, if this doesn't work, what are, what are we going to do? What's, what's the next thing? Like, let's, you know, let's gear up, <laughs> like I'm gearing up for battle here. What are we going to do? And he goes, this has to work. And I go, yeah, I, okay, yes, but what's next? And he goes, this has to work. And I said, you, okay, I got, stop saying that. Like, but what's next? And he said, this is all we have for you. There's nothing beyond first line treatment. So, uh, wow. Yeah, so yeah, so I, went, so I went back to my, I went back to my room and I just, was in despair. And I, I just said out loud, God, use me. Like <laughs> if I survive, just use me. So here we are. Well, I guess you listened. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it, it's kind of a tough gig sometimes, but you know, a deal is a deal. <laughs> we're doing this <laughs> right you made a deal so so tell us about MIB so it really you know I didn't start writing a business plan or anything like that right away I it was really about getting through treatment and um while I was in treatment there was a girl that was that was uh being treated at the same time and we were on track at the same time like diagnosed at the same time limb salvage same time we finished treatment on the same day and um I heard from her mom, her name was Alyssa, that um, she, she found a lump on her limb salvage leg. And so they were going to amputate. Subsequent to that, it wasn't going well. Uh, clinical trial, it failed. And um, not long after the mom called me and said, they're sending her home to die. And I just, I went, no, 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 you know, no. Because like, how am I NED? And this is a 12-year-old girl. I, this isn't this isn't okay and I kept saying no to the to the mom and um, hung up the phone from that call and I felt like a complete idiot saying no 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 to this mother and um, so I called her back and I said okay can you give me three days in New York City and just let me just just leave it with me because I, I and I kept uh, imagining Alyssa was her name in her living room in a hospital bed with her little sister and having that be the last space that she was in. So um, my friends and family created a three-day experience for Alyssa. She was a dancer in um, in New York City and it was all dance related. So she 
you know, backstage, front front row, Rockettes, Mary Poppins on Broadway, American Girl doll. Last night was um, Nutcracker. It was Christmas time, Nutcracker at Lincoln Center. And um, we had a great connection there and they let her dance across the stage with with one leg. She danced across the stage and that was her. um, Well, she died two two weeks later. Um, And so the kids that I was treated with, same kind of thing kept happening. So we kept doing these end of life missions. And at at some point I got tired of doing end of life missions and um, thought, okay, we've got to, we've got to work on this from a different angle. This is kind of what, what we do here, you know, one of the programs here, but we've got to front load this disease with more research, with legislation, with programs, with uh, education. And so it all kind of, it all just sort of fell into place. That's a perfect segue for my question for you, Anne, is how you basically approach that whole question of the research landscape. I mean, there's so much to learn about what's what has happened, what is happening and what people are planning. And so how did you manage all that? That's a steep climb. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, God blesses fools and babies. And and I was kind of both in that in that time with great mentors, I suppose, you know, good, good help on the scientific advisory board side. Um, One thing I knew for sure was that being a patient is not a particularly empowering place to be. You know, you feel at, at the mercy of everybody, everybody's doing everything for you. You don't even do your own dishes anymore or your own laundry or make decisions like everything sort of happens. And I, I kind of wanted to fix that as well as fund research. So I decided on a venture capitalist approach for funding research, where if you if you raised or donated $5,000 or more, you got a seat at the table with the scientific advisory board to review the abstracts that came in. And you, you had a vote, you know, you could discuss, you know, ask questions, all of those things. And at the end of the meeting, Everybody has a vote. We would leave that that um, meeting with a with three finalists, and then when we got to the our annual conference, our factor conference, it was an all in vote. So ultimately, it was a really meaningful thing because it was empowering. We have patients there, we have families there, we have doctors and researchers there. Um, everybody's voting on that. The PI that that is awarded the grant ultimately is awarded this grant by the entire community. And we think that's really powerful. And then subsequent to that, which we're getting ready to go to MD Anderson um, at the end of the month, we we go to the institution halfway through, you know, six months post-award, and we ask the researcher, please show us what, what you're doing. Show us the research, what's happening. So we all get to go to the lab, look in the microscope, hear about the work that's being done and say thank you. And we bring as many people as the lab will let us bring. Um, typically that's about 20 people. And um, it's the patients, patient families. And um, it's it's really, it's really powerful. It's meaningful. Well, backing up a little bit, how did you actually um, reach this community? How did you actually, I mean, because as far as I know, you're you're the first one who's actually, you know, kind of aggregated or, you know, 
kind of got some, um, you know, collaboration going and, and uh, community going. So mm-hmm. tell us how you did that. How did, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, well, I was the, uh, you know, I was a part of the community cause I was a patient. So, you know, I knew the moms, I knew the, the, the kids, I knew the patients. I had such excellent doctors, uh, Dr. Myers at, um, Dr. Paul Myers, Dr. John Healy. Um, so <laughs> how I think really how it started was the conference and how that started was I was on Capitol Hill asking for co-sponsorships for, um, the star act. And, um, I, you know, we're kind of, again, like sort of a zebra because Vermont is such a small state and they really needed the support of like Patrick Leahy and Bernie Sanders and, you know, kind of the big dogs. So, um, so I was asked to come down, like we need Vermont represented here. So I went down at the end of that day, I knew that what, even though I was successful and the star act was going to be successful, we got the the co-sponsorships and all of that. I still was feeling pretty low when I left that day because I knew we weren't going to legislate a cure in my, the kids that I knew in their lifetime, that wasn't going to happen. So the next morning I had breakfast with a friend and he goes, you know, you, you need a conference. (laughs) I'm like, I know what a conference costs and that's not where that's not us. You, you misunderstand how big we are. We are not that big. I do not have that much money in the MIB bank account. And he goes, yeah, but you're the one to do it. And so I dismissed him and went back to like, we had an email group, emailed the group. And I said, Hey, if, um, if there were an osteosarcoma conference, would you come? And everybody's like, yes, yes. Like, absolutely. Yes. Please have a conference. I was like, mm, okay. And I've actually spent the summer in Copenhagen with my sister. So I kind of really left it all behind and checked my email one day and started starting to get abstracts from doctors all over the country going, hey, so you're having an, here's what I want to talk about. So this was like in June, by August, I had 16 and really exciting stuff. Like I was excited about what I was reading and I had to um, email each one of them and say, um, thank you for, for sending me this. But uh, listen, if we have a conference, I can't pay for your travel. I I'm, I can't pay an honorarium. Like I can't do any of this stuff. So I'm not sure this is going to happen. Every single one of those doctors and researchers wrote back and said, you don't need to. We We need this conference. If you build it, we will come. So, and then we had um, several uh, donors uh, come forward and it just, (laughs) we were having a conference and to my, truly to my astonishment, every single year, I do the welcome, you know, the welcome speech and I look out and I go, thank you for being here. Like this is it's astonishing. These are, we have 35 speakers each year. These are the big, you know, the big doctors, researchers, collaborators um, that show up and share what they're working on. And it is, it is inspiring. And one thing I, I, I can say about this is even though I am astonished by it, every single year that they show up and they meaningfully contribute and collaborate with each other, I knew they would. I I knew they would. And I I also know as, as a patient, hearing 
you know, uh, the moms of the other patients going, these doctors, like they're just all siloed. And I, I kept thinking, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, I think it's like any business where, you know, I don't say you're a, you're a restaurant and you, and the restaurant next door is really busy and they're doing great. And you want to pick up the phone and go, Hey, what are you doing over there? That like, you're doing so great. Like, of course they would hang up on you if you didn't know them, but if you broke bread with them, if you hung out with them and had a nice glass of wine with them and, and knew them and went face to face with them, then you would, then you would have built a rapport. You would have built a relationship. So you could pick up the phone and go, Hey, listen, I've got this, I've got this patient. I'm not sure what road to take. What do you think? But you have to have that, that relationship first, which that's, I think the the superpower, the magic, the secret sauce of the, of the conference is we feed everybody really well. <laughs> we have really good food. We have really good wine. It's in a beautiful place. And we get to like hang out with each other and hear what each other's working on. But when the real collaboration, where the real magic happens is sitting down to lunch together and dinner together and you know, walking around the conference together and playing games with the kids. And we do all of those things. It's it's really great to hear the community responded to you and, uh, you know, in full force. Uh, and it, what you just said speaks to the importance of getting, you know, together in person, as opposed to the virtual world that we've uh, been forced, we're forced into there for a while. Um, so uh, tell me, you must have seen a lot then over these years now of of exciting science. What gives you hope? What doesn't give me hope? I I'm you know, I'll tell you something. What one thing that that you'll maybe appreciate um at the conference this year, we were we were at the end of the conference, and this was our fifth conference, our fifth factor conference. And um Ryan Roberts said, you know, I think we're at the point where we have more clinical trials for osteosarcoma than we have patients. What? I mean, five years ago, six years ago, because we missed a year for, for COVID, but that I I don't even I still don't even know what to say to that because the first year we did this, I we we didn't. We certainly didn't have. And that was one of the that was one of the things that made me go okay we need to have a conference i remember going to conferences medical conferences post my own treatment and looking up on the, on the chart of you know pediatric oncology and going rhabdomyosarcoma we have i don't know 18 sample size we have 24 for neuroblastoma we have you know kind of going down the list and then this itty bitty, almost, you can't see it line for osteosarcoma, a sample size of three to five. That's not a sample size. Like we need to get our, we need to get our act together here. And, and that's not, that's not the fault of the doctor. That's not, that's not anybody's fault. We just need to get together and tell each other what we need to move this thing forward. That's the only way through. Not one of us in, in, in any of the communities holds the key to unlock this disease. It's not one of us. It's all of us. It's all of us. So getting together, that gives me hope because 
when you get together, you see people laughing together and talking together and collaborating together and sharing wholeheartedly. Nobody's going, well, listen, if I, I'd like to tell you, but uh, I don't think I can because I'm about to write a paper. Like I've never once seen that sort of thing. It's been wholehearted co-contributing and collaborating and that that's amazing. And, and I'll, I'll, there's one other part to it because I'm talking a lot about the doctors and the researchers but when you have the patient families in the same room hearing the research, what's happened is they go, uh, the patient family will approach that, that PI and go, what do you need? What do you need to do this? So from that conference, from that moment of hearing what they're working on, somebody gets inspired. In this case, many people get inspired to say, I'm going to fund that guy, or I'm going to fund that, that research, or I'm going to fund that PI. And that's meaningfully moved the field forward because we know better, we do better, all of us, but it is an all-in thing. Those are some great messages and really speaks to the power of collaboration and of bread and wine, I guess. So Absolutely. <laughs> secret sauces. Donna, do you, we're, we're pushing up against time. Do you have any last questions or comments? No, I, I just appreciate in what your vision was to begin with, even if it wasn't, you know, if it was a suggestion offhanded, but also how it's evolving. And I think that's that's very exciting what you're doing. I, I completely resonate. I mean, every word you said, it completely resonates about, um, you know, that, you know, uniting these these forces for good, right? Um, so anyway, I just really really appreciate it. Keep up the good work, and and um, just I, I'm hoping very much that some other of the disease groups are paying attention and and see you know see the possibilities um, that, that have I have come to out. say they are, and we I've talked to quite a few of them who go, how do you do this? And they come to our conference and they ask how, how do you do this? And we, we're an open book. We want, no child should be suffering from cancer because we have intellectual property. We want to hang on to that's not. So if anybody wants to know how to do this, like bring it, we're, we're happy to help um, anybody who is trying to make it better. That's, we call it the conspiracy for good. Good. <laughs> I like that. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Is there anything before we close that you are looking forward to in the future or hoping to do differently or add to what you're doing? We've we've really started to meaningfully engage with pharma lately. And we have a one of the things I'm really excited about and have been for since we started it uh, three years ago is our junior advisory board. Because we're a, we're a pediatric AYA cancer, it occurred to me at one point. Listen, we we've got to have the uh, we've got to have the input of our constituents, and this is a voice that we don't hear very often, right? You don't hear the patient voice. You hear the parent, you hear the physician, you hear the researcher. We need to hear more from from the young adults, and they have a lot to say. So in addition to our weekly webinar and podcast featuring uh, osteosarcoma research, innovation, and hope, we now have a young adult podcast that I do not show up on. Adults do not 
show up, they have to be explicitly invited. Um, and it's run by our junior advisory board. And they talk about things that are important to young adults, like um, dating, intimacy, friends, integrating back into school. Um, what do you wish you would have known? What did, what did you hate to hear? You know, things that uh, for me, if I were the parent of a child with with a pediatric cancer, and it's for it's not just for osteosarcoma, it's for all pediatric cancers, to hear what my child was thinking about and worried about, um, that's that's a pretty I, I call it lifting the iron curtain. Like it's it's just you get a peek behind what's really what what are they really thinking about. So that's really brilliant and and because we have this built-in community of the junior advisory board, this is now, I think, something that pharma companies um, are finding valuable. Like, how do we how do we reach? Not it's not so much how do we reach this specific community, but how do we talk about this clinical trial? How do we engage with them to make sure that this is a good fit? You know, we're not putting a big suit on a small kid. We're we're fitting the suit to the to the kid. So um, so that's been really empowering for the young adults who have survived or who are in treatment or have a sibling who passed from this disease. That's a really empowering thing to be able to talk about it and help improve the state of affairs for the next uh, generation uh, or the next kid diagnosed even. It's very empowering and it it is um, making it better. And uh, everybody can do it. Yeah, I love it. And uh, you're a great communicator. I love your use of metaphors. Uh, obviously, you've got a fantastic uh, program going. And I assume if anybody wants more information, they could just go to their website or. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah or they can email me too. Fantastic. And that's available on your website. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I think that's that's great. You know, I think we need to wrap it up just for time's sake, we, uh, even though we could keep talking and talking and talking. So thank you, uh, Anne, so much for being here. Appreciate it. And thank you, Donna, for co-hosting. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsomdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all TWIPO episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.